You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Axe Chill in there. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. As always, I'm Josh, joined by Joey and Paul. What's up, fellas? What's up, brother? Nothing. Joey, you good? Yeah, man, everything good. Good. Yeah, well, in this episode, we have friend of the program, Matt Wilbanks. He's back. Enjoy having him on the program. Despite being a Tennessee Vols fan, everything else that he says is... Uh, pretty knowledgeable and and, uh, pretty on point. So we talked with him on this episode about the cement shortage uh, in certain areas of the country. You guys might be feeling the pinch more than others, but he has some good insight on the industry, uh, what's been happening, what we can expect from that industry, and the direction that they're going as a whole to combat carbon emissions and all that fun stuff that we enjoyed talking about in our carbon-specific episode that you can go back and, and listen to. But for now, uh, we're going to get to some things in the industry that are interesting to us here in our current event section. You know, Speaking of new initiatives and new directions, Paul, you had brought up in the past the, uh, I guess, consolidation of the additive industry, and you have some more news on that front. Tell us about it. Yeah, so if you guys remember like a year ago, uh, St. Gobain or St. Gobain, as all of our sales guys in this company like to refer to them, because we, we sell stuff to them over in France. Uh, St. Gobain, like a year ago, got into a deal to buy Creso, put an enterprise value on that of about 1.2 billion euros. And believe it or not, the multiple in that sale was 12x EBITDA. I mean, boys, for a, a chemical company, like 12x is doing something now. All yeah, right. It's a payday. Yeah, yeah, so that was good. So good good for those guys. Well, six months later, St. Gobain goes out and spends another $1.3 billion to buy Grace Construction Products. So now you got both those entities uh, under one parent company selling additives to the concrete and cement market. And this week, we find out that St. Gobain uh, has decided to sell off pieces of the Creso business. 
Now, the announcement comes out, and it's a little bit odd. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't give a lot of details. It says they're, they're putting out a bunch of, uh, you know, just selling off part of Creso to Euclid, of all people. And so I had to do a little digging, all right? Your boy went into the Internet archives, like the archives of the flipping Internet, to try and figure out what was going on. And I found that between March 1st and April 1st, I believe April 1st was the day of the edit, Creso changed their website. And what I noticed was they deleted an entire section of their website that was related to cement additives. So they had it broken down between concrete additives and cement additives. So uh, Creso went in April 1st, about a month ago from this recording, and uh, and edited it and, and took it out. It's not there anymore. They deleted it. So, so, so you know, I think we can all read in. That was in anticipation of the closing of the sale. So all their cement additives are talking grinding aids and uh, air and trainers and uh, some kind of early age activators that they were selling to the Portland Limestone Cement uh, guys. They sold all of that to Euclid. So it's interesting you know as things keep consolidating people are selling things back and forth you know and, and what i'll what i'll add last thing i'll say I'll let your boys jump in here is uh you know when saint gobain bought creaser that they they paid a good number for it and they kind of told their investors they're like hey it's going to take three years for do you see return on this that's what they were that's what they were putting it at three years and when you see the divestiture one year later like this you know, it makes me wonder, uh, how does that factor in? Does that get them their money faster? Are they looking at this? Is, is, this, a, is this a money grab? What's going on that uh, they wanted to divest all the cement additives when PLC is popping off? Portland Limestone, and we'll get in that with Wilbanks today. Portland Limestone cement's popping off. So if you've got one of the activators to help that product and you're selling it now, I mean, it seems like a value buy for Euclid. Yeah, no, it's certainly a good buy for Euclid, in, in my opinion. And I actually have something I'm going to bring up here in a little bit about uh, earnings for contra a large contracting company. Um, and we get into it a little bit deeper with Wilbanks in this upcoming interview. I mean, it's a super volatile time to buy anything. You don't necessarily want to be in a massive amount of debt right now because of the volatility of the market. So maybe they're selling a very viable cash flow section of their business because they have to you know i'd love to know the background on the selling of those cement additives because the one that's intriguing of course is are they selling these early age activators into the portland limestone cement manufacturing process is that real uh, you know you don't hear a lot about that and so it's like is that is that real is that a chemical that's really going into that process or is there a lot of that is this really going to take off as plc you know, entrenches into the market and really solidifies itself here in 2022. And if so, why would you get rid of it? Because Portland Limestone Cement is now approved in 44 out of the 50 state DOTs. The state DOTs did something they've, they never do. They like push the rules aside. They're, they didn't make you go out and test every single person with every additive combination. The DOT was just like, yeah, just send me a generic report with the Portland Limestone Cement Substitution, and we'll green light it and just fast track this whole thing. It's unbelievable. So if you've got a product that got fast tracked by almost every state and you've got an additive that goes into that 
it is an activator. I mean, I don't know, man. I why why give that up? What's the to me? I just think Euclid made a good buy. I agree that they made a good buy. I'm more curious as to why the sale was possible in the first place. Of all the things to sell off, I mean, that's probably one of the easiest things for them to sell off. That's probably one of the most attractive offerings that they had. But at the same time, you're looking into the near future about how you know these cement additives are going to be all important as we move towards and I hate to say this, but as we move towards carbon neutrality, because we all know that's a BS buzz term, but, you know, you're, you're going to, that's going to be a very popular line of products. Um, so why they're giving that away now, to your point, Paul, is, is a little bit puzzling, and I'd love to know why exactly, if we'll ever know. But um, I'm also curious to the effectiveness, efficiency, the viability of such products, because, if you're telling me there's an, uh, a cement additive that they can add to gain higher early strengths to where you can in turn use less cement and gain earlier strengths with, with some of these mixed designs, uh, um, I would assume they'd be shouting, shouting something like that from the rooftops, and I haven't seen it quite yet. I mean, I know it exists, but, you know, how effective they are, you know, maybe someone is, knows better than I do. Uh, but what do you think? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a couple of dirty secrets about the Portland limestone cement. And make no mistake, we here are big supporters. We know this stuff's going to carbon neutral, whether we like that direction or not. That's where things are going, so we better hop on this train and figure out what works and what doesn't. And Portland limestone cement is one of the things that looks like it works. Well, here's a couple of little secrets from that business, all right? Uh, secret number one. Because you're removing the clinker, which is the activating ingredient, it's the active ingredient that really gives you your, your cure, and you're replacing it with just the limestone dust, you have, in effect, reduced your activation of that cement as a whole. And so you have to do something to compensate for that. And so what do they do? Well, they end up grinding it just a little bit finer so that when you run the blade, you get a fine blade on it. Uh, you know, Wilbanks will actually go into that a little bit about how it can be a little misleading with uh, this, the limestone dust that's already fine. But, you know, a little trick of the trade, they're grinding that a little bit finer to compensate for that. Another thing that they're doing potentially are these activators, uh, which, you know, I've never even heard of. So is this going on, like Josh was saying, is this going on stealthily so that the PLC is performing one-to-one -one with the OPC? I mean, maybe it is. And here is the last kicker. When you go to buy the PLC cement from one of these guys, one of the things they have to do when they sell it to you is they have to give you a limestone concentration. So when they sell it, uh, whether you're going to Union Bridge for or whatever cement mill you're going to, Roberta, you know, across a couple of companies here, when you uh, when you go to their uh, cement mill and you get that report and you go to buy it, it actually states on there in parentheses like 10%. 12%. It actually says a number on there and what that number indicates. It's like you're buying gasoline. That's oh, exactly, actually 15% ethanol yeah, in it. <laughs> that's exactly, that's a great, great analogy. So it's exactly like that and you buy it and you know what you're getting. Here's a little dirty little secret about that. Uh, it's already got 4 or 5% lime dust in it. Um, so when they put 10% on there, you're not getting a 10% reduction in CO2. You're getting like 5% because it probably already had 5% in it. And they know that. They're not they're not hiding necessarily hiding the ball with that. They just want uh, consumers to be aware that when you see that, 
you don't then get to market, hey, I got 10%. You probably got 5%. And they know that because they know that the maximum PLC content is, or the limestone content is probably going to be 15%. And so that that's where you get that 10% reduction number from, going from 5 to 15 So So they're not lying to you there. But just to be aware as a consumer, if you see that, percentage number that's not the percent that you're reducing the clinker by it's really it probably starts at like five percent and then goes up from there to whatever that number is giving you a five to seven percent and you may be asking what where did that come from where did that number come from why are they stopping at ten percent there has been a ton of research done on that topic what is the most limestone dust you can put in there and still get like all the you know work abilities strengths everything else that goes into it um, and really that number that Five percent more lime going up to ten percent total lime is really kind of that sweet spot for most people, uh, but you may see a couple out there that could be eleven or twelve or thirteen. You know, that's definitely not the last time we're going to be talking about PLCs. You know, after this episode, I'm sure it'll come up uh, many times. And as always, we keep an eye on the on the markets, and we're we're watching Saint Cobain and Euclid and the rest of them as they continue to bat the ball back and forth to one another and selling off pieces and, and buying pieces and things of that nature. Because, I mean, honestly, at this point, I don't foresee a new contender coming into the market. I mean, you basically have what you have, and they're going to continue to consolidate and, and change in a few different ways. But, I mean... I'll say is the problem with a new guy getting into the market, where I don't see that happening right now either, is people. you got to have the manpower to staff that, to have people that know what they're talking about, and that is hard. There are not a lot of those guys out there. It's it's a limited pool, and so to come in and be able to staff that, and as we had Honorban Basu, Dr. Basu was here as an economist telling us, like, what is going on with this economy? Why does everything seem like everything's kind of broken? Why does every facet seem a little bit off? Like, what is that? And he said the common denominator was people. If you're gonna open up a new business like that and you have to have specialty people, Man, that's gonna be that's gonna be rough. It's crazy. I mean, just all across every industry you can possibly think of, from construction to service to manufacturing to trucking, no one has the the manpower. I'm at a loss to what all of these people are doing. I mean, you're looking at a a population of over 330 million people, and no one no one has enough people. Did you, uh, did you see the jobs report? We're, we're recording this uh, first week of May. The April jobs report just came out. What's interesting is when you look at just the jobs report, because we're talking about can't find people, where are all the people. The, the jobs have posted a pretty regular, pretty steady comeback under the Biden administration since he came into office. The jobs reports were always like wildly inconsistent, uh, but if you just track that as a trend line over the last uh, 15 months, you see it's a very steady climb back up almost to where we were pre-pandemic level. We're not there yet. Still like, I think he's like 5% away from that. So 5% of the market left, uh, the job people who are working left and didn't come back. Kind of That's kind of where we are right now. And, but it seems like there's a lot more than that that are going unfilled because before the pandemic, we don't remember seeing all these help wanted signs in every store on Main Street. And now I, I can't go down the street without seeing a help wanted ad people need people so i'm not sure where they're at either josh uh, but we're getting really close to pre-pandemic uh, workforce labor participation rates are up the, the actual jobless claims is down unemployment rates are down but there's like this five percent gap where you just got to fill in where those people are and 
I don't know, man. Maybe some of them retired. I, I really don't know. There's no. I don't think anybody really knows. They're all just kind of guessing. Uh, but the numbers say we're not far off. But Main Street tells you we're we're way behind. Yeah, yeah. The the, the numbers that you you speak of that you reference it just doesn't pass the eye test to me. Yeah, isn't that something though? It's it's weird that we can all see one thing out on the street, and then on paper you're like, man, kind of reminds me of mixed designs that we do. <laughs> yeah, you're like, man, this mix design looks great. And, you know, it looked great in the lab. <laughs> yeah, out there on out there on site, uh, old boy's coughing rocks up out of his pump. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, well, speaking of things that look good in the lab, uh, that's a perfect segue to what Joey Bell was talking about a little bit earlier, and this goes with the theme that we've touched on many times: is by God, you can put anything in concrete, and uh, now. <laughs> Now we got one more thing to add to the list. Tell us about it, Joe Bo. Yeah, I think we need a T-shirt at this point with some kind of silhouette, and it's just filled with words of different things that we found that people have put in concrete. Uh, I've seen a couple uh, similar T-shirts or whatever like that, but I think we could do one for items or products that you find in concrete. Uh, well, this article uh, decided to put tires in concrete, and that's tires for everyone north of Louisville and west of Texas. <laughs> so globally, uh, there's a billion and a half tires discarded every year, and less than 1% of those are actually reused. And just in Australia, this is where the article came from, Australia. In Australia alone, 51 million tires are sent to landfills. And as we all know, you know, rubber doesn't really degrade very well uh, or at all, and so they just accumulate. So... If you've got a bunch of stuff just accumulating everywhere, what else are you going to do with it except put it in concrete, apparently? Yeah, the two options are always light it on fire or put it in concrete. <laughs> well, the good thing about tires, if you light them on fire, they're going to last forever, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they, uh, they're calling it crumb rubber concrete, and I didn't actually know that crumb rubber was actually a pretty common term. Uh, they call it crumb rubber like the... Um, like the rubber mulch, you know, quote-unquote mulch that you see around playgrounds, uh, astroturf or artificial turf. Yeah, that's stuff they put on the football fields. Yeah, so yeah, it's like it's shredded uh, shredded rubber. Uh, so they're putting does this... does not t- taste good. <laughs> Doesn't taste good. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> so they're, uh, they're putting the stuff in the concrete, uh, and it's up to, you know, 20% sand replacement. Uh, it's yielding higher impact resistance. It's better thermal and acoustic insulation. It's, it weighs a lot less than conventional concrete, you know, by the cubic foot. Uh, it acts like regular concrete, pumps, screeds, finishes. Uh, and this article says it actually required less physical effort to handle that concrete. They find that it does very well through batch plants. There's no problem, you know, sending it through the plant. Mixes up well in the truck, and it actually washes out, makes the washout easier in the truck. So that was really interesting, and as I was digging, the article never really said, like, what size, you know, this rubber is. You know, the shredded rubber that we're pretty familiar with, I mean, it's, what, like half inch in some cases, or quarter inch or so? Or it could be just, you know, shards of rubber. The stuff they put on the football fields looks almost like sand in a way, maybe a little bit bigger than sand. Yeah, I've never seen it. It's actually mixed with sand. Oh, okay. Well, that was, uh, you know, that that was kind of what I was wondering. I was wondering, you know, what kind of or what size is this rubber that they're putting in there? And they, they grind it up and they grate it, uh, just like you guys said, just like sand. You know, there's half-inch, uh, there's quarter-inch sifted, 
uh, 10 mesh, 20 mesh, minus, and 30 mesh. So there's all kinds of different, you know, gradations of rubber, and they're putting it in the concrete. So uh, I just thought that was really interesting and uh, another another item that we could add to our list of random things that they put in concrete. I think it's got more of a chance than all that crushed glass and all that other stuff they want to put in it. At least tires are, I mean, it's freaking like literally waste that can be shredded pretty easily. It's already being sold. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, it's being used for so many other things. There's no reason, you know, it shouldn't be successful. And I wonder, uh, are they putting that, like, with the impact resistance and everything else, that sounds like a paving mix to me, I guess. Um, mm. Putting roadways, airfield paving, all that stuff. And then uh, if it's lightweight, that's, you know, you're looking at buildings and, and high-rises at that point, bridges. Yeah. The, you know, the problem a lot of times with concrete guys is we hear about stuff like this and we just laugh. <laughs> like, hey, did you hear they put tires on concrete? And we're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, we go back to doing what i was doing thanks for uh, thanks for enlightening me so i get once we get over that hurdle of people just laughing at it and maybe actually make concrete with it we'll see what happens that's our inbred elephants coming out yeah <laughs> yeah well it's better than the last story you brought us putting you know blood sacrifices or some crap in the concrete. that was blood in the, the martian concrete yeah yeah it was blood concrete now the last uh the last article was the sand mafia which was pretty interesting oh, yeah. yeah blood yeah. sand Blood sand, blood diamonds, blood sand. Blood sand. <laughs> what a market! Yeah, think about think about all the people you would save uh, by using tires instead of <laughs> your black market Middle Eastern sand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Save so like save the whales, save the sand. <laughs> yep, saving the planet one oh. tire at a time. <laughs> moving moving away from the sand mafia and uh moving towards union mafias which is uh, <laughs> the best segue we've ever had which, which is a thing <laughs> sopranos and, and i make no bones about it i'm not a huge fan of unions they're not all created equal and i would love to have somebody from a union reach out to us whether you're a part of one or whether you run one or whether you feel differently than me and have convictions toward your point of view, I'd love to talk to you. A true fight me in the comments section moment, if you will. <laughs> but uh, I have an update on the Teamsters Local 174 Union in Seattle that we were talking about a few episodes ago. Basically, they halted the driver uh, supply. Uh, meanwhile, there were uh, construction delays and massive traffic delays and so on and so forth, and they were going back and forth with about nine different proposals. And we got about five months into this union strike, uh, and they were striking for higher wages, obviously, because that's what unions do, and uh, better health care benefits for recent retirees, which, you know, okay. And uh, they got to a point where it was stalemate, it was stagnant. So about five months went by, and the union said, well, you know, we got to get back to work, we're losing support here from our own members, from the public, from our donators, investors, whatever you'd like to call them. So one construction drive, the article uh, referred to as a face-saving statement. The union came out and said, our members love our community and are returning to work for the people of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> make no bones about it. <laughs> the unions are for the people. Yeah, I say with tongue in cheek. Unbelievable, man. 
Yeah, the union emphasized that uh, a few workers have been called back to work, but the builders are, you know, they're ready for concrete, but they were complaining that the drivers weren't called back to work sooner. So, you know, they're, they're still throwing trash on the lawn here. Uh, the companies indicated from the outset that, like, they can't immediately return the drivers to work because uh, you have to take back trucks that were loaned to third parties to, to make up for the driver shortage in the first place, and then you have to inspect the trucks that these union drivers will be driving to make sure that they meet standards, you know, before the deliveries can resume. So it wasn't a, you know, snap your fingers and everything goes back to the way it should be. They went back to work about mid-April, though, so by about now, things should be back to where they were pre-strike as far as, you know, uh, truck supply and driver supply. And then, of course, to put the cherry on top of this cake, the local 174 union put out a statement on April 8th, the day that the, the strikes officially ended, saying, and I quote, striking Teamsters offer gracious, unconditional return to work for all state ready-mix concrete and dump truck drivers. So thank you to the gracious union overlords of Local 174 for getting Seattle construction back to work. <laughs> yeah, there's always so long you can keep like major bridges inactive before mm-hmm. the public's like, hey, bro, wait, what are you like? Like, what are you asking for? And they're like, oh, we want lifetime health care from our employees. <laughs> it's like, oh, you play football? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> No, we, we drive truck trucks. We drive trucks. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. you need to get back to work, Bubba. And I'm so glad to see that uh, they're back to work. Get get all that hammered out. I, I'm with you, Josh. Man, I'd love to have a union boss, you know, on on the program just to tell us, you know, maybe there's something we we're missing because right now everything we think we know about unions, it's it's like, bro, just leave, the companies do a good job. And if the companies, if private companies aren't doing a good job, then people can leave those companies and work for other companies that are. There's trip. never been a better time to do so. Yeah. So it, the whole the whole union thing is just very very strange. Glad glad to see those guys are uh, back to work. Pennsylvania Aggregates and Concrete Association is very uh, anti mandate of any kind, and so when the new infrastructure. Uh, package went through, uh, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure deal went through uh, the government, and one of the one of the issues there was they were mandating that you use unions on these jobs, and so the or if it wasn't in that bill, it came afterwards. Either way, they're trying to force unions onto these projects, and you know, PACA stood up and was like, "Hang on a second, like that is not good for the taxpayer. You can't mandate something like that that's going to have higher costs, longer delays, more regulation." And cause problems, like, you know. Let the let the market work here. We're, you know, you're talking about taxpayer dollars to do stuff. We should take those constituents into account. And so, there, I mean, the packet put out like an incredible letter, like sort of reprimanding the the federal in the nicest way. The reason it was an incredible letter is because it explained both sides so well. Like, hey, we understand like why you want to do this with the unions and, and what benefit you think the unions bring, but that's not reality, and here's reality, and here's why you need to consider what we're saying beyond just the fact of, of who we are. Uh, you really need to consider it for, for, on the merits, and they, they spelled that out very, very plainly. So being as active as this space is where I live, uh, I'm sure I can find the other side of the argument. So we'll, we'll look into that. Hopefully one reaches out to us, 
uh, eager to, to take on this opportunity to talk to us. But in the meantime, we'll start searching. Right on. I will be your sacrificial lamb. Come on in, come on in and, and school me. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Absolutely. Yeah, that, you know, I have a feeling that'd be one of the things where uh, you'd have, we'd have to really do our research and be ready for these guys because they're, they're going to come. They're going to come hard. Absolutely. Yeah, I might, I might have to consult some experts and, and actually put a few laborious uh, hours into getting my mind right for that one. No, dude, you have to come in like, uh, like back uh, President Trump's press secretary that he, ha- that he has. She come in with that binder. <laughs> Like had all yeah, the Kaylee answers. Yeah, she had all the answers to all the questions, and she said that you're gonna have to come with that, dude. You're like, oh shoot, he's, yep. he's bringing up wages. I better flip to W. You know, wages. <laughs> all right, here's what I got. <laughs> yeah, man. When when she started flipping around in that binder, you knew you were about to get it. <laughs> Speaking of coming with receipts, I got one last thing to bring up to you guys. Uh, we've talked about Tudor Perini in the past because they're pretty much our. They're in the news a lot because they're such a, a huge contractor. I mean, they're, they're top five contractor in this country, easy, if not top three. So they're a good barometer of what's going on on a massive uh, macro scale. And uh, I just wanted to bring up that they posted a loss of $21.6 million or uh, $0.42 cents per share for the first quarter. The analyst expectations were $0.09 cents in profit. They ended up with a $0.42 cent loss per share for Q1 and they wrote off a combined $43.1 million in charges for two projects in its civil segment. So that was a large, in large part due to the loss. Through the press release, the CEO and the CFO uh, you know, both kind of gave positive statements saying that you know, they have a cash backlog, they were ready for this. They went to court for a bridge in New York, basically... Um, the bridge ruling in New York uh, was a post-bid design change for the City Island Bridge in, in the Bronx, and it caused them to change the style of bridge from you know, like your original cable style to a, a different style where they weren't needed as much in that project. They ended up losing $25.5 million because of that. They tried to get that money back, and they lost that, that suit in court. So uh, that was a huge loss to them. But with all that being said, they, you know, what they were positive about, which is what we were actually uh, you know, talking about in recent episodes, our reservation to the market was, are these companies going to be paying their bills? Because a lot of these large contractor businesses, they bankroll the next job with the current job, and if they're not getting paid for the current job, then there's, there's a vacuum there, of a cash vacuum there. So you know, these guys reiterated that you know, as far as fiscal guidance goes, the highlight of the firm's result was from its overwhelmingly positive cash flow. Uh, the company attributed to its customers stepping out of the shadow of your COVID-19 crisis segment, and they're actually paying their bills, and you know they were able to, uh, to collect a, a massive amount of operating capital uh, from their clients who were uh, you know, sh- either shut down during the pandemic or you know not making payments. So what they saw was there's a... a a strong cash generation cycle in 2022 where of anything that was more or less unknown, that was the biggest unknown was how the cash flow would be, you know, moving out of the pandemic. So they did say that was strong. They're also said that the company is bidding on $6 billion worth of projects in the next three weeks. So 
Wow. Shooters, shooters going to shoot. <laughs> they're, they're looking at uh, a $3 billion Maryland express lane job, a $2.5 billion um, uh, Newark air train replacement project, and uh, a river bridge in New Jersey that's $350 million. And they also went on to say something that was pretty interesting to me in this press release. They said that of those four jobs, the biggest ones only had one other bidder. And they said very rarely are they competing with more than two companies at a time, especially in today's climate, these larger billion-plus-dollar jobs. They're so large and, and uh, demand so much infrastructure and resources that, I mean, there's only three to five companies nationwide that are able to even bid on those projects. So what they're doing because of that, because there isn't that competitive of a marketplace, they're actually bumping up their profit margins. And they're, they're keeping relatively high profit margins because they only have to compete with one or two other companies. And if they need to address that profit margin to gain the job, then they will. But because that marketplace isn't as competitive as you would think it'd be, and they only have you know one or two other competitors, the profit margins on these new bidded jobs are fairly high. That's crazy. There's only like two or three other guys that trying to go after that business that's wild but i mean it kind of i mean it makes a little bit of sense but still shocking i mean it's, it's shocking to me there's that few people it takes a massive amount of resources to to take on projects like that um and i would imagine one of their largest competitors has to be whiting turner right i mean they're mm -hmm. a, a huge presence here on the east coast um and then there's a few down around the texas area but i mean i'm, I'm sure there are more out there but at any given time there's only a few different companies that can bid on projects nationwide simultaneously. Yeah, I just saw where Whiting Turner got like a $500 million or billion dollar. It was a new casino or something going up in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, hey, I got, I, got, so I got one more thing to add before we jump into the Will Banks. So one of the things that we always do with our guests is we ask them what's the craziest thing they've seen on a job site. And we've had Wilbanks on before, so maybe that's why, you know, we didn't think to ask it. Uh, but, but I can't let the people go without, you know, hearing some kind of crazy story. So I got one for you. Um, the other night, I was on one of these uh, Amazon-type jobs, and I'm not going to say who it was, but it was like 4 in the morning, and everybody's running around like crazy because, of course, nothing ever goes right at 4 in the morning. So, uh firing up and uh, you know old boy pulls his uh, truck under the chute to get loaded and uh, he steps out of the truck like start washing off or cleaning something as he's waiting on it as he's waiting on the loading to begin and and as he's as he's doing his little thing he, he walks over to rinse something off and lo and behold uh, the concrete truck that was sitting on this uh, bit of an incline which is how they do it uh, it starts rolling off and it rolls backwards and starts heading straight for the like this newly propped up warehouse. And boys, when I tell you that you ain't never heard shouting at four o'clock in the morning, like when this uh, partially loaded Raymix truck just this, so the, so the emergency brake failed on the truck, and it just starts rolling off. You got a whole team of guys chasing it. You know, you know. Thank God. Nobody was walking behind that truck, like in the path of it. Nobody was on the road because it rolled quite away, and uh, and you know, there was no other like 
machine traffic or anything, you know, thank God. And they were able to get back up in that truck, get in it, and, you know, the driver didn't leave the cab for the rest of the day. You know, you know so close call there. It's our safe start story for the day. Uh, <laughs> Was this a mobile site, mobile yeah. concrete site? Yeah. Man, what you know? Not to throw them all under the bus at the same time, but one reservation I always have is the fact that those trucks aren't road legal, because they don't have to be. But because of that, man, I always fear that a lot of that general maintenance stuff gets overlooked, because they don't have to deal with DOT, they don't have to be road safe or road legal. I mean, they beat the ever loving crap out of these trucks, because you just move them from job site to job site on low boys. Um, so as, as long as they can start and roll and dispense concrete, they'll use them. But, man, far too often they got lights busted out and mirrors broken off. And, you know, some sites have better trucks than others, but they're all inadequate compared to all the other trucks you'd see over the road. Well, another thing, too, since they're on private property, their drivers don't have to have a CDL. Uh, so you probably have some guys in there that may have never even operated some kind of a piece of equipment like that. And you throw them in a concrete truck. Never even thought about that. Because that was my oh, it's 100%. deal. That was a uh, that was my deal. You know, at the last job, we were on the airport property. I didn't have to have a CDL, so I drove concrete truck. I drove those giant off-road Terex dump trucks. I drove semi trucks. I drove literally everything in the yard, and didn't have to have the first kind of license to show for it. Had a driver's license. I don't even know if it's on private property that you have to have a driver's license. <laughs> so I don't. Know. <laughs> They, uh, so, and then, uh, even, even further, you know, I was talking to our guys, um, uh, out in Las Vegas and they were mentioning that some or a lot of their guys have an automatic transmission only CDL. So they can only drive automatic vehicles. They can't drive a manual because they're not certified for it. So the bad thing about that is, you know, when their automatic concrete truck, uh, breaks down and they have a spare manual on the yard, they can't drive it. So they have an empty truck, you know, for the day. Yeah, they're just sitting there, and nobody can drive it. Strange times we're living in. As a certified gearhead, that hurts my heart. But, I, I mean, I can understand it, man. I mean, you have people, you have younger guys that have never seen a manual transmission in their life at this point. Mm -hmm. So Never never even seen one. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. And, that, you know, there was a meme floating around the other day. It was hilarious. It was like a... A nice, I can't remember if it was a nice restaurant or a nice hotel, and it was a valet parking, and, like, they put an orange cone out, and they taped a sign to it that said, you know, no manual transmissions allowed <laughs> for valet parking. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you, can I tell you my favorite part of the story of the concrete truck rolling away? Because I, I don't want to blame any of the worker guys there, because the guy set the parking brake. You know, he did what yeah, he was yeah. supposed to do, and uh, he wasn't out of line with anything he did. Just the, the brake failed. And nobody, nobody got hurt. It's all fine. But after the truck rolled off, and everybody's like, "Oh no, there's the truck!" As soon as they got it back, we all just kind of looked at each other and just shrugged our shoulders, like, "Huh?" And just got back to making concrete. Like, oh, well, no, you know, nothing really happened. I guess. So let's go. Charlie. Yeah, yeah. They are. Uh, there's been plenty of times, and I consider myself under the bus here because. HR probably isn't listening anyway, but there's been plenty of times in my personal life where I'm, I'm using the specific brand of safety glasses called squints, and, uh, you know, something, something flies up and hits me in the forehead or something, or on the nose, or something pretty close to the eyeball, 
And I yeah, kind of stop and pause and, whew, that was close. And then I get right back after it. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> That was 100% a story from your personal life and not at all indicative of how we do our work professional life. But Oh, absolutely. Well, and I will say, no joking aside, I'm being 100% truthful here, God's honest truth, hand to God. At work, I am much more safer than I am in my personal life because I realize if I get hurt at work, they are going to be pissed. <laughs> like, I'll be damned if I'm getting hurt on the job site or at work without safety glasses on. Like, I'm not about to be that guy that causes an entire all-hand safety meeting <laughs> because I did something wrong. Like, I, I am not trying to be that dude. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to fill out the paperwork. Nope. Well, in my, in my personal life, you know, I had people ask me, like, why do, you, why do you wear safety glasses when you're weed-eating and running a push mower? Like, I mean, how many things? I can't even tell you how many times I've been hit in the eye with, like, a rock but had a safety, safety glasses on and just click, just bounces off, yeah. and you're like, Hell yeah! Screw all you people that are laughing at me. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. you know, I still have my left eye. I, it's happened more than once that I've kicked a rock into my eye with a weed eater. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't talk bad on. I don't talk bad on safety equipment. I, I completely understand the necessity for it. Well, I mean, to an extent, safety glasses. I'm a huge proponent of. If you're wearing a hard hat in the middle of nowhere with no falling objects even present, having to wear a hard hat 100 percent of the time is dumb. But liability i get it yeah because you can't tell somebody you can take it on take it off take it on take it off because that you're just risking that they're gonna walk into a, a situation where they for, oh i forgot i didn't have it on mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know a, a one that i that i say is i thought was a little weird like the whole like high visibility clothing but as soon as you get into a situation where it's dark outside you realize like how legit that high vis yeah. stuff is and you're like man you know some guy just walks across the parking lot without his vest on you're like, yeah. And you start shaking your head, you're like, that guy's taking a risk. Yeah. And that's crazy because I never thought, like, a safety was that really that big of a deal. But, man, these late-night pours and stuff, I realized how wrong I was. Yeah, if there's one mm-hmm. piece of safety equipment that I have no argument about wearing, it's that safety vest. Because safety glasses and hard hats and everything, that kind of keeps you from hurting yourself. High-vis will keep somebody else from running over you. Oh, that's a good point. The, the newest... Like, all, all those things are, are super viable. I get it. No no arguments from me there. The My newest laughable safety measure, though, I've been on a few jobs where they have a, a pre-work stretch session. You guys see? <laughs> yeah. yep. No. See, seeing, seeing old Bubba over there just got done smoking a pack of lights. <laughs> he, he wolfed down a bang energy drink real quick before his shift started, and he's over there trying to touch his toes and get limber before the job starts. <laughs> Because it's mandated, and they're looking around each other like like third-grade gym class or something. They're like, oh, I'm just going to act busy right now. It's Look construction it, yoga. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's hilarious. That, no, that's what happens when people in companies write policies that have no idea anything about the people that work for them or the business that they're in. And I kind of felt that way when uh, today, it's actually the, exactly how I felt today when, you know, reading the news about uh, Creso selling their cement additives to Euclid. And all the press releases and everything I could find about it, it read like some finance nerd wrote a, a statement on what they sold. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I want to know what those additives are used for. What were they right. going into? What were they? How big is this? Like, what are we doing? And that's why I had to freaking go into the Internet archives and figure out, all right, what did Creso change on their website? Because I couldn't find Because I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it on the Creso website. I was like, I have no idea what they sold. This doesn't make any sense. 
uh, so I had to see like what they altered in the last month on their website so I could figure out what on earth is going on. Just those people have no idea the the markets that are interested in this information. They thought the only people to be interested were finance nerds, so they wrote their statement for finance nerds. That grinds my gears. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, to get away from the finance nerds and uh, get into the people that actually make this industry go around, we're going to bring in our guest here. Uh, as previously stated, we have Matt Wilbanks back on the show. Uh, we enjoy talking to him, and we do so on the side, you know, personally all the time. He's good personal friends of the show and, and, and the guys running it. But uh, his insight is, is uh, particularly valuable for us because we're going to go into the cement industry uh, because a lot's changing in that industry and, and will continue to be moving forward. So he's got a lot of great insight for us. It's a great conversation. So without further ado, this is Matt Wilbanks from Bootsy Cement. Y'all enjoy. All right, welcome back to the show. Matt Wilbanks, Bootsy Cement. Love him, hate him, whatever. Doesn't matter to us because he's our friend. We'll stick up for him no matter what all the people say about him. Wilbanks, appreciate you being here, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's the sacrifices we make to keep this world going, man. You know, it's, it's all right. But we have you on here for a very, very important reason. All kidding aside, uh, we are dealing with something in the Southeast United States that is affecting the concrete world, and that is a cement shortage. And we brought you in here to give us the skinny, man. What on earth is going on out there? Well... I guess the uh, the short version is ready mix production has gone up every year for the past 10 years in a row, and no one's built a cement plant in about 12 years. So uh, right now, demand is outstripping supply. Uh, as an industry, we've been an import market for the past few years, and if you noticed, I don't know if you have, uh, there's some constraints on international shipping. Uh, due to some international factors. So there's been some challenges bringing in imports to uh, make up for the shortfall of domestic production. Yeah, we definitely have been importing a lot, and that's on both coasts. We've covered that um, here as well. And uh, One of the things about shipping things in from Europe especially, man, we're seeing some insane price hikes right now. So not only can... We not get enough material, but the word on the street is there's double-digit price increases coming, and then it may be two more double-digit dollar price increases coming after those. I mean, Wilbanks, talk to me, man. I feel like I'm living in crazy land right now. What's happening? Um, I don't get into the pricing aspect directly. I can say that um, we had the uh, COVID issue, which affected shipping, and now there's a, an issue going on in Ukraine. I don't know if you're aware, but the, that's interrupting some of the cement production that goes on there. That's tons being pulled out of the market, which can have cascading effects. Um, last year, there was a cement plant that had a, a kiln issue go down, and the plant was down for eight months. And while that didn't just affect Texas, because that pulled a lot of tons out of the market, those tons were still in demand. It had cascading effects across the nation. Um, we're, we're seeing some similar things happen right now. Knew some customers last week. We had a nice, good rain day on a Tuesday in one part of the world where I was. They were still pouring. They were still doing business. Um, typically, you're slower on, you know, you don't do much on rain days, so you build inventory. Uh, you're typically slower during the winter. 
So you build inventory. We weren't slow last winter to build inventory, and no one's taking rain days off. So, uh, you know, everybody in the whole market's just running wide open right now. Um, it's ex- it's an exciting time, you know, in the construction industry. We are definitely uh, definitely going. You think that's about to slow down, though? I mean, is that what you're seeing? We we're not seeing any signs of it. Um, no, we're not seeing any signs of any slowdown at all this year from a market standpoint and an official standpoint. Personally, um, as an amateur economist, I can tell you it's not going to go on forever. You know, the market will go down and for a while, and it'll go back up, and it'll go back down again. Um, I see a lot of things personally that I think reminds me of you know 07 and whatnot, some signs there that I think uh, could be on the horizon, but... Um, don't know when, don't know what the trigger will be, but uh, you know, no, it can't continue forever. It never does. Bro, speculating is our favorite thing to do on here. So, uh, mm-hmm. for I appreciate Bootsy's official response, but let's get into your unofficial response. I like I like that a lot more. So, you know, when I'm reading Wall Street Journal every morning, and everybody's scared out of their mind. They think these recessions are coming, and. Uh, and, and I don't, I just don't even see it. Like all the numbers say that, you know, we should be heading for a bunker somewhere. But you look out the window, man, this stuff's getting built. Products are getting greenlit. You know, there's not, it's not like when COVID hit. Like when COVID hit, like all, everybody pulled back. All the investors pulled back. All the projects shut down, everything. This isn't like that. Everybody's going, yeah, those numbers do look kind of weird on paper, but I got a shopping mall that's still getting built tomorrow. So I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. We're, we're going forward. Everyone was, was just going ham in 1929 until they, they thought they righted the ship on Friday, weekend happens, and then Black Tuesday, and the market crashed, and we went into a Great Depression. I think the similar thing will come here. This is me, personal speculation. I don't know who it is, but someone's going to panic, and then someone else is going to panic right behind them, and the dominoes will fall. I don't know when. It could be six months out. It might be two years out. I don't know. It could be next week. That's my, you know, as an amateur economist watching it, but. Uh, what do you see, Josh? I mean, we had Honor Bond Basu on here. He was saying a recession is possible. He wasn't sure it was likely, but that was months ago, and things have changed significantly. The Fed just increased, you know, the rate by uh, 50 basis points. So uh, that signal and something's going on. You know, Josh, how are you reading this? It has a lot to do with policy. Uh, in my unofficial, unprofessional opinion, it has a lot to do with policy. And, and right now, without making this a political podcast, the current administration is, is handcuffing our abilities as a nation to be self-sufficient, both in the energy sector, the supply sector, the service industry sector. Um, you know, we're, we're really being handcuffed right now on, on what we can do and how efficient we can be as an economy uh, because right now the issue we have is the fact that we have too much money going after too few goods mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. Anubhan Basu said on our podcast and that's what's leading to inflation and, and supply issues and so on and so forth so if we fix that problem if we increase the amount of goods that are available that's going to go a long way in fixing the inflation issues that we see you know another thing that I'm uh, I, I guess encouraged by is you still, have, you still see help wanted signs everywhere. The difference between now and 07, 08 is, is that everywhere is hiring. 
I mean, all you need is a heartbeat and two brain cells rubbed together and you can go find a job right now. And I think that's the difference between now and then. Will that continue? Who knows? Who knows? But I, I think if we can get some administration in some key areas that enables our country to produce what we're capable of producing, I feel like that'll go a long way in, in fixing a lot of the issues that we're seeing with the economy today. That's interesting. I, I get concerned, though. Like, I don't know that the elections in November are going to change these issues we have with shortages. Because what I, what I thought was most surprising, so we, we have a project that our product's in, and it, it was supposed to have already started like two months ago, but they couldn't get cement, which I thought sounded kind of weird. And then another guy we're working with said, oh, hey, we can't get aggregates. And you're like, what is going on? And then official associations are saying, oh, yeah, we, we can't supply anything. And then you've got other industries that are outside of ours that are like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's a shortage of baby formula. You know, 30% of the states don't even have baby formula. You know, and there's, so it's not just isolated construction. It, start, it seems like it's everywhere. There's shortages everywhere. So Wilbanks comes on here and tells me there's supply chain issues going around the globe. And apparently there's a war in Ukraine I haven't heard about. And so he says that uh, we got these issues. And I, I heard the, earlier this week there are some policy things, like Josh said, that are, that are impacting things. And one of them was these carbon tax credits in Europe. And they're limiting how much cement certain countries in the EU can even make. And if they go over that allotment, they get hammered with carbon taxes. And it's a real problem right now because, as Wilbanks said, we're importing a lot of that cement and they're, they're wary of making any more. And then when they're being pushed to make more, prices are going through the roof. You heard any of that kind of stuff, Wilbanks? I'm involved in some international committees, but most of my uh, involvement is domestic. Domestically, um, there's the uh, PCA, the Portland Cement Association, and uh, we've got a roadmap to carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, a lot of companies in the industry have signed on to that. The cement industry is, is uh, responsible for about 1.25% of total carbon emissions in the U.S. I like to frame that with, we use a lot of our product, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the active ingredient in concrete, and I'm sure... As everyone listens to this podcast knows how much concrete is consumed every year. So, uh, you know, I like to like to preface that when you talk about the, that big number is, well, it's used a lot. So uh, it's in, important to have that perspective. Further, what that leads to is if we can reduce our carbon emissions by 5%, yeah, 5% is good, but also that's a lot of tons because we make a, a lot of our product. So that'll translate to a lot. Um, we're on, on path for that um, carbon neutrality by 2050. First step in that is uh, a type 1L cement um, to reduce carbon emissions there. A lot of companies are rolling that out right now, and you're going to see some of that. If you haven't seen it already, you're going to see it very soon. And, uh, and, some, and some other changes to try and get towards that goal. Yeah, we're seeing it roll out in a lot of places. Um trying to get our hands around the cement shortage that's going on you don't you don't think any of that is related to the changeover from type one two to plc being introduced in the market do you the two being related 
Yeah. Is uh, there any is there any correlation there? Or is that two completely separate things? Uh, it's it's two separate issues. It just happens to be, I guess, fortuitous timing for us to be rolling out a a one L cement at the same time. Everyone's buying every every bit of powder they can find, so the customers aren't investigating it real hard. Um, we've worked really hard. I personally have in the lab testing uh, concrete with our new 1L cement against our 1-2 historics to make sure that the performance is going to be very similar. I can speak to what I've done is, is very similar performance at our companies. But there's, there's varying degrees, just like there's, there's always varying uh, variances in different cements from plant to plant. Uh, so you're going to see some of that as well. Uh, some of them I've seen done competitive testing and, and then seen different results. It's really a, a, a wider range I would, uh, I've seen from the performance of 1Ls in the market than your standard 1-2s. I've seen some of them that uh, don't perform as well as 1-2s. Uh, I've seen some of them that perform more like type 3s, depending on, on other factors in them. So um, I think you're going to see a, a wider range of performance, but the, the, there's, there are adjustments that will need to be made industry-wide as we continue down this pace forward. One of them is uh, the whole industry needs to work on uh, reducing cement content in mixes. There's a lot of over-designed mixes out there for a myriad of reasons. Uh, I know we love to beat up testing labs, um, but the, one of the biggest things that you see a lot of is uh, improper curing of cylinders on job site. Well, if you properly cured the cylinders on the job site, then you could pull some cement out of those mixes because you wouldn't have to compensate for that. Then another one is... Uh, some of these uh, uh, construction schedules, they, they like to pull cable at 24 hours. So they want 37.50 in 24 hours. The deck's design strength requirements are only 5,000 PSI. If you're getting 37.50 in 24 hours, you're gonna break nine, 10,000 PSI on that mix. So what you've, you've, you've ended up throwing a lot of extra cement at this. There's a way to be more efficient about that because that, that's part of what we're gonna have to do to reach these uh, carbon goals is as an industry uh, look at some of those things and make adjustments. Uh, I can't I can't all just be, you know, the cement guys have to figure out how to make cement without producing any CO2. I don't think that that's fair for <laughs> burden to put on us. I got a question though. So in the in the manufacturing of the 1L cement uh, and specifically talking about Portland limestone cement here, uh, the the additional 5 to 10 percent limestone that goes in is that being added at the same time that the gypsum goes in uh so that you're doing that second grind is that is that added at the same time as the gypsum yeah yeah that's part of the finish mill process that's that's when you add it you'll take your base clinker and you'll run it into your finish mill and that's when you'll add your gypsum and your limestone and uh whatever grinding aid you're using in order to facilitate that grind when you do that, does it take any longer to manufacture that PLC cement than a traditional type 1-2? It can if you grind it finer. See, the issue is the limestone is a softer material than your base clinker, so it's going to grind faster, finer. So if you were to run the same blane on a 1-2 and a 1-L, it would actually be a higher blane on the 1-L because of the limestone that's ground finer. So in order to get the same reactivity on, and get your clinker to be ground to the same fineness, 
you want to grind it a little bit longer in order to get it a little bit finer. Um, so that's how you would that's how you would track it that way. That's interesting because I was talking to one of your competitors in the market, one of the other cement suppliers, and uh, they're converting their whole plant over to doing one L and. And I asked why, because uh, it didn't seem like there was wide adoption yet. Uh, there was actually some not so favorable results with their product in the marketplace, and and that's why I asked very frankly, like, why why would you do this if everybody's mad at you? <laughs> why, why are you gonna give them the product that they're mad at? And uh, you know, and he, at first he kind of wanted to say, well, maybe we just got to do a better job educating this and that. Like, no, no. We know how to make concrete. Something's going on here. Like this stuff wasn't doing right, and he can't. You know, he finally said, "You know what? It's our fault from a consistency standpoint." And he's like, "We kept turning this mill off and making a little bit of one L, and then turning it back on to make more one two, and turning it back off to make more one L." He's like, "That on and off game at a cement plant." He's like, "You're just screwing yourself over. You can make." two half decent products so you can make one really good product and he's like when we actually just sit there and run one l for a long period of time we get a much more consistent much more favorable product i thought that was a really you know wise admission of them to say yeah you know we can't really make two products not well so we're gonna we're just gonna stick to one and we're, we're gonna do the very best we can so uh, my question to you matt is uh what's Bootsy's take on that? Are you guys going to end up doing the same thing, kind of just converting 100% of the production process over to uh, these Portland limestone cements? Yes. we will. We, by the end of this this calendar year, we will have all of our United States plants 100% uh, producing 1L. Uh, two of our plants have already switched over completely, um, and the other plants are phasing in as uh, as it's feasible. From a consistency standpoint, each plant's different, and the people at each plant are different. We have had success making, uh, in the past, we would make a 1-2 product, and then we would make a masonry product, and we would also make type 3. And we've, uh, uh, partly because of the, uh, the plants we have, and partly because of the, uh, the great uh, people we have at our plants, uh, we've been able to transition from a 1-2 and to make a 1-3 uh, type 3 product and then back to the 1-2 and, and make very good type 3s and very good masonry products over the past few years. Uh, at least that I've been around. I'm sure they were doing great before I got here. Um, I didn't, you know, <laughs> the company didn't start with me. Uh, you know, it, it is different when you don't make the same product every single day. Uh, like some of those products, like a type 3, you might make it once a month. You'd make a run of it, and then you go back, and uh, so uh, the consistency is it on, on a product like that. It's not always the same as when you're making, you know, the product every day. Uh, but uh, they still did a very good job of keeping it inside of our uh, target parameters. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I saw the re the press release about you guys switching your plants over. Um, yeah, I missed the part where they were all coming online for one L uh, by the end of this year. That's, uh, that's pretty incredible. Would that that may make you the market leader in that, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, let's uh, let's jump into something real quick. So one of my favorite things about Will Banks is after he listens to our podcast, he makes sure to call me and tell me how I was wrong about something. So guys, y'all should know that the margins in ready mix aren't there 
to expand as quickly as they have without debt financing. Uh, there aren't that much profits in ReadyMix. Um, now, there's a saying, you know, when you owe the bank a million dollars, you got a problem. When you owe the bank a billion dollars, the bank has a problem. The bank doesn't want to be in the ready-mix business. They're in the bank business, right? They, they loan money. So then they're going to want, try and turn around and sell it, especially if it's a recession. Like, bank's going to get, you know, pennies on the dollar. So they don't really want to call that note. Damn. That's, I'll tell you what, that's interesting. Gears are turning inside my head here because I made a comment where the difference between now and 07, 08 is that anyone can go somewhere and get a job and that's promising. However, in 0708, the issue was that the banks were selling subprime interest rate loans and disguising them as good ones. They were getting picked up and not paid back. Issue that we've had the last couple of years is that debt was cheap and business owners were borrowing money at a record pace and they were buying, to your point, Will Banks, that wasn't worth what they were paying for. it. If you extrapolate that outward to the entire economy and uh, a lot of different business avenues and industries where companies are borrowing money because it was cheap and then it comes time to pay that note and then the bank's underwater maybe that's how that that light switch moment that you described earlier happens we got a subprime business loans instead of subprime mortgage loans yeah our, our black tuesday is called because of business loans instead of mortgages now this time but same concept applies that's that's crazy yeah private equity was spending money like it was no tomorrow there for years yeah yeah and, and they were being told to it's like hey you'll you'll never have a better opportunity to borrow money than right now it's basically free the markets took a beating today um i think yeah. one of those days it's going to take a beating and somebody's going to get scared and pull out and and someone will follow them and yeah, there's, there's a lot of exposure out there. Um, and exposure's fine as long as you're in a bull market. And, you know, right now everybody's running. And if you have noticed, a lot of the cement manufacturers are getting out of the vertical integration game. Part of that theory is maybe they uh, weren't as great at running ready mix as they thought they were. I don't know. There's other theories. Uh, my company doesn't have a lot of vertical integration, very little. So uh, it's not something that we're getting out of um, but you see a lot of consolidation around the market and then you start to see some uh, concrete finishers wanting to get into the vertical integration to me I think it makes more sense for a construction company to be vertically integrated than for the uh, cement manufacturers to vertically integrate by buying ready mix it's kind of an issue because when you buy a ready mix operation as a cement manufacturer that's your you supply them they exist to consume your cement but then everyone else in the market doesn't want to buy from you because you're their competitor, right? They're competing against that ready-mix operation that you own. So it makes it hard to, to, to just sell to anybody in the market. And especially, uh, well, certain times it makes sense to, that, that you'd like to be able to sell to anybody. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to sell your product to as many cust potential customers as possible. So in one sense, you could be limiting yourself. But then you've got the other issues with contractors. They're gonna they're gonna want to supply themselves first, and are they gonna consume all of what they produce, or will they have a little left over to sell to some some smaller guys? And then there's the question: Are they gonna give those guys any kind of service, 
or are those guys just going to get, you know, whatever scraps there are? And there's a certain level of service you need, or you're going to get cold joints and, and such like that. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how that dynamic works out. Well, it's interesting how that dynamic works out now. So the vertical integration on the cement side, uh, the first, like, so like you said, they own their own ready-mix people, and those ready-mix companies exist to consume the cement because the cement's the profitable side of the business. But what ends up happening in those situations is the cement companies overcharge their own people, and their own people are also the first people that get cut off when there's a you know supply constraint, so you know that so it's interesting you're coming at it from the other way. Like maybe if the finishers own the ready mix, then you know would they squeeze out their competition's ability to get supplied? Like you said, you can't just cut off in the middle of a thousand yard pour and be like, oh yeah, sorry, I need to I need to direct a hundred yards over to, to Joe Blow's you know massive swimming pool he's putting in his backyard. It's, it's like no, yeah. you, can't, you can't do that. I think the happy medium there, where you're talking about finishers getting into the ready mix business, um, I, I think a happy medium between then and not being in the business at all, this might be the point of the episode where Joe Bell comes in and talks about the benefits of volumetric truck. He de- Again? We have a section of every single episode where Joey mentions how great volumetric trucks are, and this one might be it. You might see more finishers get into the ready mix, the ready mix business in quotation marks by buying volumetric trucks and using them to supply other people or using them to supply themselves, but they don't have to buy a brick and mortar type infrastructure deal. Just so you know, you brought that up and I did not. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Did I do a good job, Joey? Do you approve of the PSA? (laughs) Yeah, I approve. Nothing else needs to be said. But, uh... (laughs) Wilbanks, when you, uh, or I guess it was Wilbanks that brought it up, talking about the contractors vertically integrating. When you first said that, I initially thought you meant that ReadyMix companies were acquiring contracting companies, which I do see that uh, every now and then. And you also see ReadyMix companies with their own pump trucks and all kinds of other things. So I didn't know if that was what you meant, but you clarified that. Um, But is there, like, what's the difference there? with a ready mix company supplying their own contractors versus a cement company supplying their own uh, ready mix company. Well, I mean, uh, I guess you could see some of that. It would be, I haven't, I haven't actually seen any ready mix companies uh, go that way and purchase contractors or start doing some finishing. I know some concrete guys that do some finishing on the side, but as a concrete guy, I say we're not typically visionaries. Um, we don't typically, uh, you know, if we're going to expand. All we can think about is, well, let's get more plants, more trucks. Like that's expansion. No, well, more plants or more trucks or both. Uh, you know, any other ways? What What are you talking about? What do you mean other ways? You know, we're not real cre- creative guys for the most part. Um, you, you also see the same thing with uh, uh, material guys. Uh, rock and sand um, and in, in my past I've worked for vertically integrated uh, cement I've worked for vertically integrated rock and sand uh, on the concrete side um, you are not their favorite customer you yep. well yeah you you get you know, treated like a you know redheaded stepchild 
Perfect. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Joey. The answer to your question is it depends on the view of management and what they started as. So if they started as an aggregate company and they end up buying ready-mix plants, well, ready-mix plants are the redhead stepchild. Probably don't want to work there. Um, if you started out as a cement company and they bought ready-mix plants, well, guess what? You're the redhead stepchild there too. So uh, probably don't you're gonna get left out to dry. You're gonna get the worst pricing. It's uh, it's just how it goes, man. It's what did they start as? What is the most pro- what is their profit center? And in most of the country, uh, outside of like the Rocky Mountain region for whatever reason, the rest of the country, the profits on uh, a ready mix business are like that of a restaurant. You know, single digits and sometimes very low single digits. They're lower, yes. Um, you also see cement. Cement is cement has to have higher profit margins because the barriers to entry. Because it wouldn't validate that capital investment otherwise. If you want a cement plant, it's going to take five years and five hundred million, rough estimates on the cheap, to get your permitting, to get it built, to get your quarry. I mean, you know, you're talking two hundred fifty thousand in before you decide if you're buying it. If, if you're going to build there or not, or maybe 500,000, because you've got to, you got to do your drills, send those to the geologists, look at the limestone. Is this good enough? Possible permitting, you know, um, and you want some kind of return on that investment. And if you're, if you're making, you know, one and a half percent, that's going to take you, you know, you have, you have to get your investment back before the, before the quarry is empty. And it's usually a hundred year quarry on a, on a, on a cement. So, you know, you got to, you got to get that money back. Whereas ready mix, you're talking, do you throw up a plant in somebody's aggregate yard so that there's no, basically no permitting. It's already there. You know, you're 400,000 and then you buy some used trucks, you know, you're talking million and a half and you're, you're in business. And you don't even need that much money for, uh, to purchase your aggregates because you're on their yard half the time. So, you know, you're, you're up and running for a million, million and a half in concrete. So. Yeah, I was just having having this talk with our director of like strategic operations. They were trying to figure out like you know how much does it cost to make a yard of concrete? How much are they selling it for? And you tell you tell them those numbers is like the the cost of goods versus the sales price. And they're like, whoa, there's that much margin in concrete? And it's like, no, 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 you're not taking into account all the fixed and variable costs. And let me start running through a couple of those for you. And then by the, by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, well, they made like five bucks on that yard of concrete. Maybe they made 10 bucks. And, you know, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's not great. No, Once you, know, you put in your taxes, tight. your overhead, uh, trucking costs, your fuel, your driver, your batch man, um, yeah, all, all those costs have to go on. Yeah, you're talking, you know, three to eight bucks a yard. Is, is well, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Uh, that's a long time ago when I was in that. But uh industry but i, I the, as we remember from folks's class those margins were not great <laughs> <laughs> folks was so great. Uh, I, I almost but, changed majors when he told me that you know <laughs> in class was like what what i'm, I'm gonna go well, back yeah. to finance dude <laughs> yeah his answer his his yeah his actual question to us was all right if the because he took out that nrmca report and by the way the report looks very similar today as it did back in you know 2007 we were sitting in that class and, uh, you know, it says, oh, the profit margins, average profit margins, like 2 to 3% or something like that on this concrete business. And he goes, you know, I got $2 million sitting here. I can either buy a concrete plant, a bunch of trucks, and make 2 to 3% on it, or, or I can go down to the bank, you know, and they're telling me I can get 
2%, put it in a CD, not do anything, just sit at home and play video games. Why would I start a concrete business? And, it was, <laughs> and the whole class was just speechless. Like, well, I guess we wouldn't. No, what are we doing here? Like, why are we even here? And he says, the, the lessons don't be average. He said, the number one guys that are reporting in this benchmarking survey, they were making, you know, 15 to 20%. And he's like, that's where you want to be. That's where you want your profit margins. And that's a nice thing to say, but the only people that are doing that consistently in that benchmarking survey are the Rocky Mountain region. And so one of the things I'd always wondered about that is that, is it possible that maybe that's an area where cement is not, you know, the, the top dog, it's not vertically integrated. So like in the Southeast where a lot of it is vertically integrated, and we were just talking about how the cement is the profit center. So they're totally putting the screws to a lot of the ready mix guys. Then they're not worried about the ready mix guy turning a big profit. So when you turn in the benchmarking survey, those profit percentages uh, are going to be listed as lower. You know, I, I don't know how much of a factor that plays in it. I'm not real familiar with the Rocky Mountain region. Um, I know Lafarge was a big player out there. Uh, I think they sold some of those assets off years back. 100% of them back, yep, back in the early 2010s. It was right after they sold their uh, southeastern assets as they sold that. I, I worked out there on an on-site project. They got some, some great granite rock out there. Uh, man, before we get you out of here, Joey, you got anything for the great and powerful Matthew Wilbanks? No, not a whole lot. Just uh, go Vols. That's all I got to say. Go Vols. Go Vols indeed. Unbelievable. Joshua, you got anything for the great and powerful Wilbanks? Well, if, if America cared about college baseball as much as they should care about college baseball, me being an Arkansas fan, Wilbanks and I could go back and forth but the fact that if we did that, no one would know what we're talking about. <laughs> I'll save it. But uh, there is a there's a great chance that Arkansas will stand in the way of Tennessee and vice versa for them getting to the College World Series this year because they're both fine establishments in college baseball this year. Arkansas has been very good for a while at baseball. Uh, Tennessee's just come on. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully it's some battles, man. Arkansas – Dude, even when they're not having a good season in all their sports, they're always hard to beat. Uh, basketball, football, baseball. Even when they have a bad season, that's it, they still make you earn that win. Um, so uh, hopefully we get some just some good games. And, uh, and uh, yeah, best of luck to you. Yeah, for those people that aren't paying attention to college baseball, uh, the one thing you got to know is that the Tennessee Vols, I hate to admit this, they have literally the most awesome college baseball team maybe that ever existed. Uh because they play with that swagger that reminds me of, it sounds kind of silly to say, but it, it's, it looks like the 1980s Miami football team. Like the Tennessee Vols baseball team plays with that same kind of swagger. Like, hate me if you want to, but I throw 105 miles per hour, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that to have that kind of confidence, you know, the, the freaking coach went out there and ran over an umpire like, and then didn't apologize for it. He went out on campus <laughs> and said, yeah, I'll run you over too, and and you can pay me for it for charity. I mean, owning owning your he, ch he chest bumped an umpire, and they suspended him, and then he went out on campus and sold chest bumps for charity. <laughs> I mean, that like I love that, and so it it hurts my heart that it has to be the Tennessee balls that come out with that kind of swagger and that kind of dominance. But I mean, hats off, man. That's I love it. I love it. I I think y'all's team. 
I don't I don't see how anybody stops that pitching rotation. I just I just I just don't. It's unbelievable. Well, if Bama paid as much money for baseball players as they did for football players, Ben Joyce would be throwing for the Crimson Tide instead. But you guys are you're cheaping out on baseball and saving all your pennies for football. That hurt. That hurt. The truth hurts. <laughs> yeah. Will Winks, man, all jokes aside, dude, we appreciate you coming on here, sharing some knowledge with us. You always have the insights on the cement world. We really appreciate you, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, brother. We'll see you. Thanks, man. And that's going to do it for this installment of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you coming along with us and listening in to all the insight that Matt had to share, and we certainly appreciate him for doing so. Be sure to check us out on social media, as always, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, YouTube, and also give us a review and rating on the podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about us. Uh, We always uh, appreciate seeing our viewership and and listenership numbers grow, and uh, we can't thank you guys enough for your support and patronage. And until next time, y'all be good.